Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. (coughs) But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Brandon Lutz. As, As Joe said, I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer City Church. Uh, my main responsibility is working with students, uh, so that's what I, what I usually do. I don't preach too often, uh, so bear with me. But uh, this morning, uh, Jeff's asked me to fill in for him. Um, he's getting much, much needed and deserved uh, rest with his family and just time away. It uh, looks like they're having a lot of fun. If you follow them on social media, I think or Marissa's been posting pictures. But um, So Jeff, uh, Jeff asked me to preach a couple months ago when he was first planning his vacation, and he gave me the passage of scripture. He said, Romans 3, uh, 21 to 26. Uh, go ahead and, and do that. And I didn't really take a hard look um, at this passage at all when he first told me. And then during the month of October, uh, verses 23 to 26 were, as a staff, our, our monthly memory verses. And as I, as I read it throughout the month, I kept thinking, man, what, what in the world does all this mean? I mean, there's, there's some confusing, some bold statements that are in this passage. There's some big, fancy words that Paul uses in this passage. There's a lot of things that at first read sound at least very confusing to me. I don't know how you felt as they were being read. And then to increase the intensity of this passage, uh, many theologians and people who are way smarter than I will ever be, uh, they're, they're calling this passage the most important passage in the Bible. They're saying, people like John Piper and Tim Keller are saying, this is the most important passage in the Bible. One professor calls this passage the center and the heart of the letter to the Romans and possibly the gospel as well. Dr. Leon Morris says it's possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. No pressure, right? (laughs) So thanks, Jeff. All that that being said, next time Jeff asks me to preach for him, I'm going to do a little bit harder look what he's asked me to preach on, but, but, but in all seriousness, th- this is an extremely significant passage of Scripture for the Christian, for the non-Christian. I hope that God will shine his truth on all of our hearts this morning, that we will have a better understanding of who God is, who, who we are as sinners, and hopefully it will lead us to a more awe and wonder and worship and love of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. So this morning I want to tackle this passage by asking a few questions. First, we're going to look at the topic of God's wrath. Why does the, what does the Bible mean when, when it talks about and, and addresses the wrath of God. The common thought today is that God, God is a God of love. There's no anger, there's no wrath in God. That's not who he is, but the, but the Bible describes God as wrathful and loving. So how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense that God is both wrathful and loving? Second, we're going to look at God's righteousness. How is it possible that a just God, a, a righteous God, a holy and perfect God can justify sinners? How can God bring sinners towards him? How can God remain righteous and make sinners righteous? How can he do all that without compromising who he is, without changing who God is at his core? 
So we're going to dive right into this. So, so we're right at the end of the third chapter of Paul's letters to the letters to the Rome letter to the Romans, excuse me. And up until this point, and as we've looked at over the past couple months, Paul goes through, he's going through different groups of people and explains why they're not righteous, why you're not holy, why you're not like God, why they are not worthy in the eyes of God. He starts with non-Christians. He basically says, you don't want to believe in me? Guess what? I'm still here and you're still without excuse. All of creation points to me, all of creation points to my glory, but if you choose to suppress that, suppress the truth of me and who I am, then that's on you. That's not on me. If you don't want to acknowledge me for who I am, then you will remain unrighteous. He then moves on to Christians. The problem the Christians of Paul's days and the problem that we still face today as Christians is that we so easily think that faith in Jesus and being worthy in God's eyes has something to do with us. We think that if we are good enough, if we hit some level of morality or some level of, of, of goodness and uprightness, then we'll put a smile on God's face. Or maybe instead of looking inward at your own goodness, you look outward and you make sure that you're better, you're more good, more virtuous than at least most of the people around you. You know, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but this scene has stuck with me. Have you all ever seen the movie Without a Paddle? It's an older movie. Seth Green, maybe? Is that who's in it? But in, it's a movie where uh, three longtime friends, they go camping together in the woods. I don't think they're the camping type of people. They don't know a ton of, they don't, if I remember correctly, they don't know a ton about camping. So they bring a bunch of food, and they're eating dinner, and they leave all their food and their coolers out on the table, the picnic table, and then they leave. They go on a hike or a walk or something. Now, if, if you have ever gone camping or you know anything about camping, then you know that this goes against Camping 101. You never leave food out. You never leave coolers out or anything like that. So at, at some point in time, I th for whatever reason that I can remember, it's just two of the friends that return to the campsite. And they find a bear tearing open their coolers, eating all their food. And so they, they quickly just pause, and they stop moving for a second. One of the friends, he, he very slowly he starts untying his shoes, and he's taking off his shoes. And, and the other friend whispers, he's like, why are you taking your shoes off? That doesn't make any sense. He goes, but dude, I'm, I'm way faster with my shoes off. <laughs> he goes, I, I know you did track in high school, but do you really think you can outrun a bear? No, but I can outrun you. <laughs> that's how many Christians, that's how we, we attempt to be good enough. They just, we just make sure that, that we're better than most of the people around us. They constantly, we constantly compare their lives and, and their actions to justify themselves and attempt attempt to convince themselves that we're, that we're good and that we're worthy in the eyes of God. And can I add that, that this is why a lot of non-Christians don't like Christians, because this is what, how they receive us, this is how they perceive us, how we've done relationships with them. Paul says at the end of Romans 2, you don't get it, Christians, you're missing it. There's something deeply wrong with your heart, so much so that there's nothing good you can do to even give you the slightest chance of being righteous on your own. Then in Romans, Romans 3, Paul tells us that Christians and non-Christians alike were both under sin. Nobody is righteous, not even one person in all of history for all of time. And as we read today, Romans 3.23, the famous passage, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. Every single part of us ha has been corrupted by sin. How we think, how we feel, how we act. Our bodies are under the curse of sin. Our world is under the curse of sin. We are not good. We are broken in every way. We're the opposite of good. 
or even inclined towards evil. Evil and wickedness, that's our nature apart from Christ. This is the nature and the state that we're born into because of sin. This is um, the best example I could, I th- I could think of uh, that would help. So I'm 5'7", with shoes on. That's not very tall. That's, that's short. I consider myself short. But I was born with a, a genetic code, a genetic disposition that basically decides I'm probably going to be short. My dad's 5'7", with shoes on. My mom's 5'2", I think, 5'2 or 5'3". They gave me their shortness. I was born with their shortness. In the same way, we are born sinful, every single one of us. Psalm 51.5, I was sinful at birth, and I was sinful in the womb. All of Romans, Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, up until verse 21, is this massive indictment of all mankind with a view of showing that all people are sinners, and accordingly, we are all under the judgment of God, and we all are the objects of God's wrath. This summarizes much of what Paul has said up until this point in Romans. So the next question for us is, how does God relate to us then? If that's who we are, if we're all sinners, how does God relate to us? How does a holy and righteous God relate and respond to wicked and evil sinners? God hates sin. He hates it. At the root of sin is is the belief that God is not who he says he is. Sin says, I don't need God. I am worthy without God. My life will be better if God is not involved in any way. If this is where the wrath of, and this is where the wrath of God comes in. In Romans 1.18 we read that the wrath of God is due to the unrighteousness of man. And this, this, the wrath of God, that's where we tend to get a little shaky, a little uncomfortable. Why do we get uncomfortable when we think about the wrath of God? I I think there's a couple different reasons we get uncomfortable when we think about God being wrathful. First, we live in a time where our culture wants to define God as the God of love. He's this God of love, this God of acceptance. doesn't matter who you are, come to me. Their, their philosophy and their belief is that God is all-loving. He accepts you just the way you are. You're perfect just the way you are. You hear it in our songs. You see it in the TV shows. That's the, that's the air of our culture right now. You don't have to believe what God says in the Bible. The rules and the commandments in the Bible are just for those times in history. They're outdated. They don't apply to us anymore. Sin isn't really a thing anymore. God loves you just the way you are, so accept yourself. Embrace who you are. The things that you want to do, the way that you want to live, they're not sinful. Embrace that. What is sinful, what is wrong in in our culture today, is if you don't embrace and fulfill the desires of your heart. And the problem with this view, the problem with, with our culture and how they think today is, is that we're, th- we're making little of our sin. We're minimizing our sinfulness. We're telling God that sin isn't that big of a deal. We're telling God that we know better than he does. But the biggest problem with this view is that we are redefining the standard of the righteousness of God. It seems like accepting this view and philosophy of God and, and God being all-loving would be so liberating, so exciting. Man, everyone wants a God who's going to accept me for who I am, no matter what I've done, what I struggle with in my heart. But that's not the case. It, it's, it's missing something. And it's missing the beauty of the gospel, which is why all the churches, I've read a study uh, not too long ago, I think this summer, that all the churches around the world who are moving away from God's word as their standard, as their highest priority and foundation, that they're moving more towards a, a, the highest priority being a culture of acceptance and embracing everyone, all of these churches are dying. 
In fact, there is one denomination that, that is losing members and people so quickly that if they continue to lose members at this same rate, this multi-million member denomination will be dead in less than 25 years. I mean, that's crazy to think about. This philosophy is having the opposite effect that they thought it would so quickly. And it's because God's holiness and his righteousness have been stripped from him. There's no depth to who God is. Frankly, there's no reason to be in awe. There's no reason to worship a God if he is the God our culture says he is. Secondly, uh, more personally, most of us do wrath and anger very poorly. It, it's, easy, it's easy to even think that, that anger and wrath are bad emotions, even sinful emotions. We looked at anger this summer uh, when we looked at the seven deadly sins. So I don't want to say much here, but the Bible is very clear that wrath and anger are not sinful. Ephesians 4 tells us, be angry, but do not sin. The emotion and feeling of wrath and anger is not sinful in any way. The problem we run into is that most of us, most of the time, our wrath is sinful. Most of the time, our anger is sinful. Most of the time, when we get angry, it's because we're overreacting to something. Maybe your child breaks something or starts screaming really loud for no apparent reason in the middle of dinner. I get angry. I might get harsh with one of my children when they do that. I have gotten harsh. A lot of times, um, my anger, at least for me personally, it's, it's just rooted in selfish motivation. You know, I love watching uh, NFL football on Sunday afternoons, but if one of my kids walks up to me and they want me to read a 30-second book to them, I get angry because they're robbing me of something that I really want. I get sinfully angry is what that is. So when we think about God's wrath, we, we assume that it's a lot like ours. In the animated movie Inside Out, have any of you ever seen the movie Inside Out? If you have kids, you've probably seen it. Yeah. Anger is depicted as this short red character that, that's always on the verge of snapping, and when he does, fire appears and just roars on the top of his head. So when we think that God is angry, we envision his face. His face must be bright red. He's ready to explode. He's ready to hurl fireballs and throw lightning bolts at us. But there's a difference between God's wrath and our sinful wrath. God's wrath always starts, it, God's wrath always starts with sadness and grief. When Jesus was confronting the Pharisees on their hypocrisy, one of the many times, he, he always gets angry. But his anger was rooted in the sadness over the coldness of their hearts. God's wrath is always rooted from sadness. It's always controlled. It's always because he's thinking and he's experiencing the brokenness of another. But what is so different about God's wrath, contrasted to our wrath, is that God's wrath always leads him to do good. When's the last time you were angry and it resulted in you doing something good? In the just mentioned account of Jesus confronting the Pharisees, Jesus' anger, it leads him to healing a crippled man. There's one thing that brings God the most sadness and grief, which then leads to wrath and anger, and that's sin. God's heart is broken because of our sin. So sin, and sin brings out the wrath of God. And what many people don't want to believe is that sin deserves the wrath of God. Ephesians 5, 6 tell us that our disobedience is why we deserve the wrath of God. Galatians 5, 10 tell us that we are cursed and deserving the wrath of God because we have not obeyed him perfectly. And we've seen this throughout Romans, that we are sinners, we're, we're full of sin. Therefore, we deserve the wrath of God, and our only hope as sinners is that someone else has to appease the wrath of God. 
Our only hope is that someone else stands in our place and receives the wrath of God and the punishment of sin on our behalf. That's the only way. This is the, the definition of that big word in verse 25, uh, propitiation. Propitiation is the big, fancy Christian word that we use to describe the changing, the changing of direction of God's wrath toward another. Not that it's removed, not that it's lessened in any way, but the recipient of the wrath is not the one who deserves it. You know, I, I have three children, Carson's five, Eden's two, and Avonlea's eight months, somewhere around there, I think. Um, Eden just had a birthday uh, last month, and, and she needed some help opening up her gifts, so Carson helped her. Uh, but let's say it's Carson's birthday. Carson would be six on his next birthday, and for, wh- for whatever reason, let's say Carson deserves, deserves birthday gifts on his birthdays. He doesn't deserve gifts. He gets them. But he deserves gifts from mom and dad, from his grandparents, uh, from whoever. But whatever, for whatever reason, on that day, we give all of his gifts to Eden. Eden doesn't deserve them. It's not her birthday. How do you think Carson's going to respond? Not good. But Eden doesn't deserve them. It's not her birthday. We are, we are changing who is receiving, even though Carson still gets the gifts. It's his birthday, but he doesn't get them. Hopefully that helps just understand uh, just propitiation. We are getting, someone else is getting something that we deserve, is what propitiation is. And, and here is something that every Christian must believe. If, you, if your faith is in Christ, you must believe this. The wrath of, God's toward, the wrath of God towards sin is a very, very, very good thing. We worship the God of the universe who hates sin. He hates the destruction that sin brings to his creation and to us as his image bearers in his creation. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. We deserve the righteous anger of God and the consequences of our sin. God has to punish sin or he would cease to be God. But how is there any hope then for us as sinners? Is there any way that we can be saved from our sins? Who is going to pay the price for our sins that we deserve? Who is going to stand in our place? Is there even someone who can stand in our place? Moving on to the second point. In looking at the righteousness of God, we have to ask the question, how can God, how can God remain righteous and make sinners righteous? This is the question for many Christians and non-Christians alike, but how we answer this is so crucial to our understanding of the gospel. Can I go as far as to say that how you answer this question tells, tells where you're at in if you're a Christian or not? I mean, not how you answer it verbally, how you answer this in your heart pretty much determines whether or not your faith is in Christ or not. So let's unpack the word uh, righteousness for a moment, a word that comes up seven or eight times in these six verses. Dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally good or right. But God defines righteousness in the Bible a little differently. God's definition of righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word, and every inclination of the heart. The righteousness of God is perfect wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So not only are we unable to do that because we're falling short of the glory of God, we all know that even if we tried to do this, even if we weren't crippled by sin, there is no way that we could do this. We have no ability to achieve the righteousness of God in and of ourselves. But God is righteous. God is perfect 
in all of his ways. We are sinners and we are evil and we are fallen in all of our ways. Because of our sin, there is an infinite chasm that, that separates us from God. It's like two ends of the magnet that just will never stick together. They'll never stick together. They're always at war with one another. So we, so we ask the question, so if, there, we can't, if we can't stand before God and do it, can God be lenient on us? Can he take it easy on us? Can he just cut us some slack? It's not possible. There's no way God can do that without compromising who he is, his perfect wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He hates sin. Sin is the opposite of God's design for us. Sin has been waging war against God since the Garden of Eden. God has to punish sin, and he cannot hold back anything against it. Sin must get what it deserves. Sin, sin must get what ultimately what it wants. Sin deserves death, for the wages of sin is death, and sin screams at God that it wants to do life and everything apart from him. So that's what's going to get in hell. Eternal separation from God and the forever removal of God's perfect wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Ultimately, sin deserves the wrath of God, and therefore God has poured out his wrath on sin. That's how God remains perfectly just. That's how he remains righteous. But we get to the, the part where it says God is, he is just, but also it says he's also the justifier. God is also the justifier, for there's no other way. The Father justifies his people, his children, through the work of his son, Jesus. He redeemed us by verse 25, Jesus being our propitiation, receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. God's righteous good wrath is turned away from us, those who deserve it, by Jesus who takes it in our place. God himself takes on his wrath. So the cross is the place where the just judge takes the judgment. The cross is the place where God in Jesus becomes the justifier of sinners. This was the Father's plan. It was the Son's willing sacrifice. He did not suffer and take our place because he had to, but because he loved his Father and us. He could have turned aside, but he chose not to. As, as we see, Jesus, he agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane. He agonizes and prays to the Father. If there's another way, please, let's do it. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. John Murray writes, God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. Tim Keller writes, God doesn't set his justice aside. He turns it on to himself. The cross does not represent a, a compromise between God's wrath and his love. It does not satisfy each halfway. Rather, it satisfies each fully and in the very same action. On the cross, the wrath and love of God were both maintained, both demonstrated, and both expressed perfectly. They both shine out and are completely fulfilled. The cross is God's demonstration of justice and his justifying love. That is how God is both just and the justifier on sin and sinners. Um, and we just have to take a, a time out for a moment and deal with the second half of verse 25. It says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? I'm going I'm to let Jeff answer that. <laughs> this means... That before Jesus, before the cross, before that, that ultimate event 
in all of time, God has been doing what Psalm 103.10 says. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. He has been passing over them, but he does not forget them or let people off the hook in any way. King David is a good example of this. In 2 Samuel 12, David is confronted by his friend and the prophet uh, Nathan for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered and killed. David feels the rebuke that Nath- of Nathan, and in verse 13 he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I know what I deserve. I know it's coming to me. But then Nathan responds, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, I don't know where, where you are at in the, uh, the justice meter, where, where you stand on that, but are you kidding me? Like, just like that, murder and adultery are passed over. I mean, when I, when I first read, even now when I read that story, are you kidding me? That's not fair. That's not fair at all. David deserves to die, or at the very least imprisoned, at least for the rest of his life. But Nathan doesn't excuse, what, what we think there when we read that, Nathan doesn't excuse or minimize David's sin. He's put it away. David did not receive the wrath of God against sin because there will one day be one who receives the entire cup of God's wrath. David could not drink that cup. We cannot drink that cup. In Acts 17, Paul tells the Athenian philosophers that God has overlooked idolatry and sin in the past only because he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he warns his readers in Rome, he, and just like he's warning us today, not to believe that God's kindness and his patience will save them. Rather, God's kindness and patience now is giving them space to repent. God in his patience is holding the door of opportunity open a little bit longer, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. It's why he waited in, in the book of Jonah for the Ninevites, the reason for God's previous, what we might call, inaction in the face of sin was not moral indifference, but personal restraint on God and patience on God until Christ should come and deal with it on the cross. Does that make sense? Nobody can accuse God of condoning evil or, and, and so of moral indifference or injustice. The cross demonstrates with equal richness both his justice in judging sin and his mercy in justifying the sinner. He is able to give a righteous status on the unrighteous without compromising his own righteousness. There is only one way God can remain God. He has to be just and the justifier, and that truth is the heart of the gospel message. 1 John 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus received the wrath of God, the wrath of God that we all deserve because of our sin. Jesus has made the perfect once and for all, once for all offering that turns away God's wrath. And if our faith is in him, we need to fear it no more. This should give Christians and an assurance of peace, the ultimate assurance of peace. In the end, we have nothing to fear, for he has already stood in our place. And uh, we're wrapping it up, but uh, just a couple more things. A lot of times we, when we think of 
of receiving the righteousness of God, being pardoned of our sins, and, we, and being pardoned of our sins is the same thing. And we, uh, before the throne of God that we sang this morning, uh, one of the last lines in one of the verses is, to look on him and pardon me. And, and I'm not trying to rob you of joining any, any of those songs that say the word pardon. I love that song. That's one of my favorite songs. But let me flush out, there's, there's a difference between pardon and righteousness. There's a difference in all this and what God has done. Pardon is a negative term. It is the removal of a penalty or a debt. Being made righteous or, or justified is another word for being made righteous is a positive term. It is the transfer of a righteous status. For Christians, it is being brought into God's family and favor. Pardon only deals with, with the part of being forgiven by God. God says, you may go. You may go. You've been let off the penalty, which your sin deserves, but I'm pardoning you for this. But being justified, being made righteous, God says, you may come. You are welcome into my family. You are welcome to all that I have. All my love and my presence is yours. Do you understand this beautiful truth of God's grace? When you are justified by God, there's no longer any ground for the punishment of your sin. For, for you, the righteousness of another has been transferred to you and all the benefits that come with that. Most of the time, I know I focus on the forgiveness of God, and, and I minimize or I forget, and, and I, I neglect that forgiveness is just half of being made righteous. Being declared righteous by God is receiving a, a validating performance record. I get Christ's perfect, holy record. So wh when you want a job, what do you do? You send in a resume. It has all the experiences that you have, all your skills that you have that, that are going to make you worthy of this position. You send it in and you say, look, here I am, accept me. This is why I should have this job. Look at all my qualifications. Every religion and, and every culture believes that it's the same with God. It's not a, voca a vocational record. It, it's a moral and, and spiritual report card. You get out your Christian report card, your Catholic report card, Buddhist report card, whatever it is. And if it's good enough, if I've been good enough, you are worthy of life with God and you're accepted by him. But now, but now, these are the first two words in Romans 3.21. But now, for the first time in all of history and the last time, there is a radical new way, the only way to God has been revealed. A divine righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, a perfect record and status is given to us. No other place, no other culture, no other religion offers this. Outside of the gospel, we must develop our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own good enough record, and offer it to God and hope and wait and see if he accepts us. The gospel says that, that God has developed a perfect righteousness, and he offers it to us, and by it we are accepted. Not because of us, because of him we can be accepted. Because of him we can become the righteousness of God. You know, our assurance of pardon told us this beautiful truth. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus received the wrath of God that we deserve, and we receive Jesus' righteousness that we do not deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is what captures our hearts to him. Let's pray. Father, it's... 
so easy to, to think about the wrath of God and, and just misunderstand it, um, just to handle it in ways that um, aren't true of you and, and to give you characteristics and qualities in your wrath that just aren't true of you. Now, Father, you, you are a righteous, just God, and you hate sin. You hate sin because it is everything against you. And Father, we should, we, we should be so overjoyed and we should worship you and be in awe of you that you hate sin. That, that is a very good thing, that we worship a God who can't stand sin and wants nothing to do with it and wants to destroy it for all time. And Father, as we think about uh, just your wrath and, and just the wrath that we deserve because of our sin, and, and we just deal with the questions and, and even the riddles of how, do, how does a righteous God make unrighteous sinners like us righteous? And Father, it, it's such a, a hard question, but at that, the answer to that question is the heart of the gospel. And we try to answer that question ourselves. We try to answer it with, with being good, being better than most of the people around us, being better than our friends and loved ones, people we're just constantly comparing ourselves to. But Father, when, w- when we look to your word and we look to you, we see, we see the cross. The cross answers that question for us. Because on the cross is where Jesus took on what we deserve. Jesus took on the wrath of God, the penalty of sin that we deserve. And we, in return, get his righteousness. We get his perfect report card, his perfect record. We get his perfect inheritance, his status, his declaration as your son. We are now your child. We are your children because of him. So, Father, as we just are going to sing a couple songs and just worship you again through song. We ask you to just continue to work in all of our hearts, work in all of our hearts just to understand uh, these truths, just that your word and that, that you are just and you are also the justifier. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Four times in our, our passage it says, how do, how do you receive, if it, ain't, if it ain't a Christian report card or any Buddhist report card or anything like that, how do I receive God's righteousness? Four times in our passage it says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, trusting that his work is enough, that his life was enough, that his death is enough for you now and, and for you forever. And so we, we leave today uh, when we go out into our, our relationships, our jobs, and our, our places, our homes, um, just hopefully with more of an assurance, hopefully some peace of God's righteousness in, in your life. It, it's yours. It's yours already. So let's go. Let's go with God's promise and and benediction over you. Please receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.